Hi, family. I'm DK. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Thank you for inviting me to come and talk about carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you to the planning committee and the advisory board and the program committee and steering and um, and uh, it's been kind of I've gotten to work with some of these folks a little bit over the year and it's just been really amazing and I feel especially privileged to be a part of Living Sober 2019, it feels like it's just so much energy and so much goodness and so much, uh, uh, it like just, the fundraisers have been amazing. Uh, if you haven't been to any, go to them next year because I think it's going to keep going. We've built up some really incredible momentum and, uh, had a fundraiser in Oakland. I mean, it's just like the work that you're doing is amazing, and I know you're all exhausted. I've never seen uh, one of the, like the the program people also be in the musical, right? <laughs> Leslie, Kim, whoo! I'm tired just looking at them. <laughs> so, I came to Living Sober in 1988. I got sober in uh, this time, uh, April 27th, 1988. And uh, so that July 4th weekend, I came to Living Sober with my um, gaggle of young, barely sober drug treatment pals. <laughs> you know, they gave scholarships to the programs. I think you probably still do, but we took advantage of them. I think there were about 20 of us, little queers, running around, figuring out, you know, how we could fuck each other outside of program. Um, that's another story. Early sobriety. So yummy. Um, somebody said, they're still doing that now. No, they're not. I said, yes, they are. Please. Shauna, you here? Um, <laughs> okay, so I, I wanted to call out a couple people. <laughs> Teresa told me, do not talk about Al-Anon. Um, and I just love her for that. She's been, ne she's been sort of poking me all, uh, all weekend about, you know, don't fuck this up. And it's kind of interesting because it's like, you know, it's your story. Like, you can, I could probably blather on a lot about how it was, and that might not be that very interesting. Uh, and, but I've learned not to do that. Uh, and then, where's Honey? Honey, it's like, girl, do a good share for us. Okay, do what I can. Um, make a good meeting. I think that's what you said. Make a good meeting. Uh, my partner Trish is here. She said, "Do you want me to come and and uh, you know beam be, shoot beams of love at you?" And uh, I was like, "You could if you wanted to, but I feel like I'm gonna be full of love. Like love is gonna be. I'm gonna really be able to feel it. And 
Um, and I do. And that's the gift of later sobriety, I think, as well, is uh, this is uh, like just being able to experience you and feel you and be in your presence and try to be present for that. Um, and I think it's the perfect time because I think up until this year, I probably couldn't have done it. I would have been too nervous um, to really just kind of hang out here. And, and also, I have no notes. So, um, I, I mean, I took notes, but I didn't bring them, <laughs> which means I have no notes. So I was raised in the Midwest. You know, I, I like to say I was raised by wolves. And I was. I have six brothers. I have two male parents, sort of parents, not really, um, sperm donors, or one sperm donor and one uh, father. Uh, a mom who had a terrible, was probably mentally ill. So I think actually I wanted to say, just think of Dee's early story and then we'll just, I can move on to my recovery. <laughs> it's eerily similar. And uh, though without the psychiatric, well, without a lot of psychiatric, there was some psychiatric uh, um, hospitalizations, but that wasn't the main thread. The main thread was just, you know, eight kids. My mom was done. She was partying. She could not be bothered to have children. And so um, I think, I don't know how alcoholism is caused. I don't even think it's that interesting. Um, But I think there was a lot of, um, a lot of good ingredients in that soup to have made for a, a juicy little alcoholic. And, uh, but I think it was long before I drank that alcoholism appeared in my life. I lied, I stole things, I was sneaky, um, I did not trust people, I, you know, and I did not, um, yeah, I just always felt like I had to lie. Uh, and, um, and so when I was, you know, I don't know, 10, I mean, the the first time I smoked cigarettes, I stole... My mom used to um, have, invite the neighborhood over to our house to play cards and drink all night, so we'd wake up to go to school, and the card game would still be going on. And some guy left a, a pack of Lucky Strikes um, on the counter, and I picked him up and threw him in my lunch bag that I was making for myself. And... Um, <laughs> After school, my friend Jackie Consiglio and I went, and we smoked every single one of them. You know, like, I think that was the primer, right? I mean, why would, why every single one? I don't know. I got, I was completely sick, and I started smoking. That was the beginning of my smoking. And likewise with alcohol, I poured um, all the booze in my parents' cupboard into a Tupperware, and I took it to my, my friend Heather Hill and uh, I think Tracy Higgs. We drank that Tupperware full of booze. It was disgusting, as you can only imagine. I never drank scotch again. It had more scotch than anything else. And I was like, you know, like, I just was so sick. I poisoned myself. I got completely drunk, completely sick for days. And all, what did I learn? That the things that you take to get you fucked up don't taste good. But you still keep taking them. 
So I, uh, you know, by the time I graduated from high school, I was no longer living with my parents. My mom had a, a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of physical violence and I'd say, you know, just, uh, it just wasn't a good place for me. So I, I, I got out of there and, um, and just got really serious about killing myself. And that's what I did for the next whole bunch of years. And, uh, when I finally, I spent a lot of my using and drinking trying to get sober. Telling myself, you know, tomorrow I'm gonna stop. You know, this is gonna, this is it. I'm done. I'm gonna go to this. I'm gonna go to Dallas and get clean. I'm gonna go to, um, St. Louis and get clean and then, you know, find my way back to, uh, eventually to San Francisco. Um, so I did geographics. I, I did all of the things that we do to try to stop the madness, to stop, stop the agony, to stop the pain, to stop the misery. Um, I took a hundred phenobarbitals to kill myself, and I went to bed next to my partner. I did not leave a note. And then I fucking woke up, which I'm so happy for now, but at the time it was like, what? <laughs> but apparently I'd had built up quite a tolerance. By the time I got to recovery, I had been in and out of jail many times, and I uh, I kept going to jail. Uh, well, I don't know. I yeah, that happened, and um, I, I was thinking like I went to jail on really big charges, and then the last time, and this is how I think God's. Grace works. I went, I got arrested for possession of a stolen ID. So I had a rap sheet, you know, as long as my arms, but um, this time it was possession of a stolen ID and they would not let me go. And that was what I needed. I needed, they kept letting me out. You know, they, they just say, okay, you know, you come back to court, which of course I never would do. Um, and so they didn't let me out and, uh, um, by the time I, you know, I was a hundred pounds, I was a size zero. <laughs> I thought I looked fabulous, but really I looked like a, you know, sucked up, scary, heroin addict, coke fiend freak. Um, but I thought I was so cute. Um, and so I got to, I got to go to treatment and, um, I was sentenced for, to three years in the penitentiary uh, to be served in treatment, and I started to learn how, like, I was so feral and so un, like, I had no glue, and uh, I didn't really have a self, and so AA uh, um, recovery has been an opportunity for me to put myself or to build a self to create um you know what do i like what don't i like what are my boundaries what i mean i only knew how to relate to people sexually i did not know how to have any i mean sexually and as uh commodification like what do you have that i can get um and what do you have what can you know what can you give me what do you got what do you got um 
And so I sort of used people to feel good about myself or to get that feedback uh, that I was okay. And <clears throat> so that it just took a really long time to, like, develop any kind of, um, I don't know, uh, self-foundation. And uh, I always I say I learned how to... Um, I got sober in treatment, and I learned how to live in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I learned how to, um, you know, that idea that you, we just re- were reminded in the musical, you know, trust trust God, clean house, uh, help others. Our, that our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And how do we do that? We just go to meetings. Go to meetings, you know, like, no matter what, even if your ass has fallen off, right, you go to meetings. And I didn't, I, I didn't exactly know what any of those things meant. That was the other thing is, I, I couldn't even read when I first got sober. I, if I read a paragraph, I would have to read it again and again and again. I did not have any kind of, like, my brain was fried. And I couldn't comprehend, so people would tell me stuff. I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about AA too, right? Is we just read the same stuff over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually it's sort of, you're like, oh, wow. Like, that, that serenity prayer really is wise. <laughs> you're like, now I've, I've heard it 300,000 times, but now I just heard it. Because they're so preoccupied, right? We're so preoccupied. And so, uh, I mean, um, in the very beginning, if I went to a meeting, I, I wouldn't get up. I wouldn't use the bathroom because I didn't want to be seen walking across the room. Um, I, you know, I was both like a, like a, I, I think of myself now as a super shy, like a social introvert or a super shy extrovert, but really like a social, I think I'm more of a social introvert, truly. Um, but I was really animated and really big in that way that only alcoholics can be, right? Um, just taking up space because I was so afraid, always so afraid, um, so uncomfortable. So I, uh, a couple of things um, on... June 8th of 1988, I took an HIV test, and I learned that I had HIV as a result of my um, my, my beautiful life. And um, and at that time, that was a that was some really bad news. Um, but I decided. So I'm I'm in treatment, and um, can I do this? Okay. Uh, and D. Hampton <laughs> was with me when I took my HIV test. I have known her from the time that I was, from the first day I was sober. And um, that is super meaningful. Um And I'll say more about that as I go on, but um, I felt like if I go, like this is a death sentence, and so if I 
I should just leave, you know, treatment because it's stupid and hard. And uh, and then I knew that I had this three-year joint suspended sentence hanging over me and that I'd gotten so messy in my addiction that there was no way I wasn't going to get arrested really, really quickly and end up in prison. And then I would say, well, am I going to die of AIDS in prison? That seems terrible. And so I stayed. I just stayed. And it was... Uh, you know, it was one of those things where you're like, okay, what are the people, what are these guys who are living with HIV doing? Oh, and by the way, I went to a support group for gay men in recovery <laughs> with HIV. I was like, can I come? And they said, come on in, girl. <laughs> of course you can. Um, and uh, what did I learn? I learned, like, you know, don't. Don't hang on to your anger. Don't hang on to your resentments. Eat well. Um, try to get a good night's sleep. Exercise. You know, like, this is how you live with HIV. It's like, well, geez, that's what's already happening in recovery. So, you know, why don't I just keep doing my recovery and see what happens? And so in some ways, like, I think another way that higher power has helped me stay sober is to give me this bit of news, which... Um, was, you know, you might have said is really, like that, like the, uh, the story of the horse. Anyway, good news, bad news. Good news, bad news. Um, yeah, so I just started setting goals. Like, I'm going to, if I die, I'm gonna at least die sober. By the time I got into recovery, I had alienated every single person in my life. Like, nobody would talk to me, and for good reason. And so I thought, well, I'll die sober and my mom will at least be able to say she got sober before she died. And then it was like, well, maybe I'll get a little job or, you know, well, maybe I could have a girlfriend or, you know, well, maybe I could get an apartment. And so then, like, life just keeps happening as we get sober, right? We just keep, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And and then I, um, you know... I'm in AA and I'm meeting people. I have a crew. We're like going to meetings. I went to high noon a lot. And I had, oh, also, weirdly, Wiki was also my sponsor, but she wisely fired me. <laughs> she told me I had to go to a meeting every day. <laughs> I was like, no, I can't go to a meeting every day. <laughs> and so I, you know, she's like, really? Every day. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, every day. I go to other meetings. Um, and, and that, and so she was like, you know, you can't follow directions. You, you, you can't have a sponsor. So, um, so the, I was pretty, um, that idea of like, I, I didn't, it's a miracle. Like, I don't know how I am sober because I couldn't follow directions. I couldn't read. I couldn't, you know, stay. I mean, I would, I just, but, what do you do? You just keep showing up. You just keep showing up and keep showing up, and uh, even imperfectly. Um, when I started, I started to get uh, symptomatic from HIV in the mid-90s, and, uh, and I could, I was going to Women's Kitchen Table, I was going to High Noon, I was going to the Wednesday night women's meeting at the, the across from Dolores Park, um, and I started to get sick. And then I started to tell stories about the people in AA. This is like, this is how my brain works. You know, like, I never liked those people anyway. You know, 
they don't understand about what I'm going through, especially the lesbians. They don't understand what it's like. And so it sort of built up the defense so I could leave and not miss you or not be missed. Um, but really what was happening is I couldn't bear to be that vulnerable. I couldn't bear to be that sick. I couldn't bear to have people see me die. And so I uh, left. Not even that consciously, right? It's like only in hindsight that I can look back and go, yeah, I just sort of built up a whole story. And the story works in all kinds of ways and places in my life. Like this alcoholic story of where I start to talk, you know, my brain starts telling me what's going on with other people and why they're jerks um, is usually like a big red flag. Like what's going on with you? There's a little, little, little bit of Alan on there, Teresa. Um, what, what's, what's going on with me? <laughs> and what do I, you know, what's really happening? Why am I feeling uncomfortable? Why am I feeling um, sort of tore up or seen or vulnerable? Or, or what, when did I get my feelings hurt, you know, three and a half years ago, and I've never told anybody about it? Um, you know, the, the, uh, yeah, so, so that happened, and then, um, combination therapies happened, and, and, but I didn't, I kind of found my way back, rather, like, I, through the back door. I started going to Al-Anon, and I got my, on my 25th AA anniversary, I had a party, and I put my mug shot, on the mantle of our house and most of the people at the party had no idea that that was my path and I was like oh that's a problem and I could be of service as an alcoholic woman and AA like what I was of service. I've always been in, I've always been in 12 step program, but I was not like in, you know, doing the deal. And so I came back with a sort of a vengeance. You know, I started going to three, four meetings a week, getting spon, I got a sponsor. I got, you know, we worked the steps. We, um, she taught me how to read the book and, um, and how to sponsor others. And, uh, that, you know, going through the the fourth step and the well, just going through the steps at at 25 years sober is really, really kind of amazing. And it reminds me that, like, I I don't. Somebody said last night, the more I'm sober, the less I know. Um, or maybe it was Mary who said it today. <laughs> the older I get, the less I know. Um, but the more I'm sober, the less I know. And the less that I, the more I feel excited about being engaged in the process. I did an eighth, I did in my eighth step, I, um, I remembered that I stole an envelope out of my dad's work truck. And I, it, it was the deposits from his restaurant. And it was a ton of money, cash and checks. And uh, I had never, I think I was like, I'm going to go to the grave with this. You know, like it had never come up. I'd done many 
uh, rounds through the steps in, in, um, many programs and that had never ever come to the surface. Now, it's not like I forgot it. I don't even know what, I can't, I don't even, can't even explain that. So, you know, my sponsor and I are trying to do the math and it's like $300,000. So probably, and my dad's like on his deathbed. So it's probably not likely that I'm going to, um, pay him back in cash. Um, $300,000, I mean, like, in, if you take the, the inflation over the years from the time I did that at the age of 16 and my now 55 years and, you know, you add that up. So, but I had, um, I always had a little stash of money. Um, I, I was, I said I was sneaky and, uh, one of the places that I've always been sneaky is around money. And, uh, so I had some money. And then I had, you know, some more, some, I'd have like a little bank account over here and a little bank account over here and some money in an envelope. And then, um, and I, it's kind of like my get out of the relationship money. Um, or get out of the, whatever I'm in, you know, whatever pickle I'm in, I gotta go and I gotta go now. And so at 25 years, my sponsor's like, well, maybe. You could take your get out of the relationship money, give it to your dad, and um, you could feed two birds with one seed, or you know, two amends at once. And so the get out of the relationship money was in my uh, father-in-law had built us a, a desk, and the money was in the secret compartment of the de- of the desk, and you needed actually a paper clip and a, a pen, and only Trish could get it out for me. So. Um, it wasn't really that useful in terms of getting out of the relationship, you know, in the middle of the night. <laughs> I'm not good at spatial relationships. And um, so I gave my dad the money and, you know, I don't know, it was whatever, like a couple thousand dollars. It wasn't, I, maybe something like that. And you know, he didn't remember that I'd stole the deposit, so that was kind of a bummer. Um, I, but he was so, he was a, uh, yeah, he, he wasn't really a person to hold anything against anyone. He, he lived his whole life with my mother, who was an insane alcoholic. By the time my mom died, she'd burned every single penny she'd ever had. She was, cremated in her nighty without her teeth in a cardboard box. And it was like a cemetery that was like a pet cemetery, like we like a cremation in Bradenton, Florida. I mean that shit was like off the hook crazy. And um and my dad was like she was a queen. Like, no she wasn't. But um so he did he wasn't one to hold grudges. And um he worked really hard. He made a lot of money, and they were penniless. So, um, yeah, so that was, um, I feel like in some ways, I don't I don't know why it took as lo- that long for that to come to the light, but it did. And I think, you know, it's the beautiful thing about the program, the sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. You know, some of us are in the sometimes slowly club, and I feel really happy. You know, that there's a saying, I wish you a long, slow recovery. I love that. I want a long, I want to, I want to, you know, do this as slowly as possible now. 
Um, yeah, so I, um, I did, you know, when you're 31 years sober, like a lot of life happens and, uh, I think that some of the, um, you know, some of the things, the life's, life's events, you know, people, my, when my mom died, um, I was able to, uh, you know, Trish and I went and we visited her and, um, we were kind and we took her to doctor's appointments and, um, and after my mom, what, you know, it was the abuse was really severe. And, um, after she died, like I had forgiven her and my part of my amends with my mom was to call her every week, just call her every week, make sure it was before 5 PM and start telling her about my life. And instead of going, you know, like in the beginning I called, she'd go, oh, I'm so, you know, I got so many problems. It's so terrible. And then I'd give her suggestions. And, but she was the, uh, you know, the yes, but person. And so eventually I learned not to give her suggestions, but just tell her about my life. Tell her about my friends. Tell her about the kids. Tell her about things that are going on with my job and just share myself. Because I think being a queer kid, you learn that your life is a secret and it's unacceptable. And so I just started sharing um, who my people were and what I was up to. And we were going camping or we're, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. And, um, and, and acting like I'm not ashamed of my queer family <laughs> and acting like I'm not ashamed that I am an alcoholic and now I have this beautiful life and this beautiful community. And then before you know it, you're not ashamed of those things and you're sort of sharing them like I I am like more integrated. Every year I feel a little more integrated. I made a joke about having HIV at the dinner table when during my stepfather's funeral. And uh, I, it was... <laughs> And it was like my brothers were like, she's just said that out loud. Like, she has HIV. Like, yes. You know, it, it's fine. This is just the truth. Um, but that year, the year she died was a, was a, was like the most difficult year because I think partly because it's over. You know, once your parents die, it's, it's done. There's no more like, if only my mom would show up. You know, it's like, no. That's that's done. This is the story. This is a, and it's not like the story ends. We stay in relationship with those people for the rest of our lives, but the stuff ends, <laughs> you know. And um, yeah, I'm just going to tell this story because it occurred to me. Um, I it was a hard year, uh, and I woke up from nightmares, and I had a lot of like just sort of memories and uncovering a lot of the trauma and. Um, and so at a, her, the anniversary, also, Trish and I drove across the country for her, uh, memorial service, and we left Wednesday, we had to be there Saturday morning, which meant we really sort of had to drive the whole way, uh, without really stopping. And I told Trish, I can drive, I'll, and I always drive everywhere, I'll drive, I'll get us there. And every time I got behind the wheel, I fell asleep. Like, I could not drive. And so <laughs> Trish is, like, driving through Nebraska. <laughs> and in Nebraska, she woke up one morning. She's like, um, the hood to our car is open. We'd slept all night with our car wide open. Um, anyway, we get to Wisconsin for the memorial service. And um, there is no service. It's a It's a potluck.
I was like, well, so are there any chairs? Are we going to do like, you know, memories or conversation? My brother's like, well, no, are you kidding? <laughs> Why would we do that? Um, so that was hard. That was weird. Uh, so, so at the year of, and, uh, after a year, I was like, I gotta do something. And so I went to the beach. Some of you have heard this story. I said, I want to go to the beach. I want to do something. And I took a pack of matches and a piece of paper and some shells from her beach. She lived at the end of her life in Florida, you know, sitting on her deck, smoking, drinking coffee, drinking alcohol. And she um, would see the dolphins. And every day she'd, she'd, you know, she'd run in. You got to come and see the dolphins. And I'd get up and I always miss the dolphins. <laughs> And uh, so we go to the beach, and it's January 2nd, and um, we're sitting there, and I'm like, do you think we could see whales? And, you know, at that moment, a porpoise jumps out of the water, and there are porpoises like crazy out there. And I feel like, and I say, fuck, she does not deserve to come back as a higher life form. And Trish says, yes, she does. She was an alcoholic. And in that moment, I, like, it just, I knew that everything that had happened had just happened. It didn't happen to me. I just happened to be there while she was being an alcoholic. One of us. And... I just, it's like, this is what happens if we get to stay sober. We get to that place of forgiveness, of really sort of going, yeah, that's that was a tough life. My mom had a tough life. I mean, she also was funny and partied and was an amazing cook and um, hot as fuck. And, um, yeah. So that that's a little story, and then just one more little story is I um, I don't know I have you Pat which ones have you put up Oh okay well then I'm out of stories um, Yeah this is um, I don't know I sometimes wonder why why do I get to do this Why do I get to be sober help others and um, you have this life connect to people, work on things, you know, do all the things that we do. Um, and I'm so, so grateful that this is my path and that I have a design for living and that it is in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous and that all I have to do is show up, read it, work with others, and I get to keep having the most amazing life imaginable. Thank you.